Today, Today on Wine Access Unfiltered. When I was working at Deutsche Bank, actually, I think it was after Deutsche Bank, I had lunch with this this guy, Kevin Parker. Kevin was like my boss's 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 boss, like way up there. <laughs> um, and he said to me, he said, when I turned 50, I decided I was only going to spend time with people that I liked and do things that I liked. And I'm like, well, why the hell wait till you're 50? Right. Why do you have to be 50 for that to be a good idea? I'm like, I'm doing that now. Like, I left that lunch a changed person. <laughs> Welcome to the Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast. I am really, really elated to be here with you, Vanessa, because we have someone from our own industry for the first time on the show. I know. I know. This is a first. It's it's funny. We talk to people, you know, of course, all the time who are in the wine industry, but it feels like yeah. this is brand new for the podcast. So I don't know. I'm a little nervous. <laughs> I am a little nervous too, but I think we both have semi reason to be nervous because he is probably one of the most respected, not even like critics in the industry, just human beings. Like he is someone that we all look up to as a a wine expert, a connoisseur, uh, an educator, someone that I professionally admire very much. um, And I'm sure you do as well. I do. and, And what I'm excited to talk about, though, aside from wine is I've heard so much about him as a musician. Yes. And I know that obviously with your background in musical theater and and my background in opera, like I just, I feel like I don't know how we're going to pack this all in. Well, I think it's going to be really interesting. And for those wondering who this person is, because we haven't said his name, (laughs) Antonio Galloni, uh, incredibly famous wine critic and CEO of of Venice, which is a a company that encompasses many different things, including not just wine reviews, but they they have a whole series of maps and education and um, they own Delectable now. Antonio uh, is very interesting because though he he was born to parents that really loved wine and, and worked in the wine industry, that was not his initial love and and it has many different things outside of wine that he is involved in, uh, to your point, you know, Vanessa being music. So this podcast, I think, while it will be, um, you know, a little bit different in the sense that this is our first person that we've had that's actually in the wine industry, I think the conversation will be similar to the ones that we've had before and that it's not necessarily going to focus on wine itself. Exactly. It should be fun. Um, I'm also really excited about the wines today. We kind of like flip the script a little bit because normally our guests don't choose the wines. But given the scenario and given the fact that Antonio has tasted all of them, I don't I, I think there's very few wines in the world that Antonio has not gotten his hands on. Right. So right. we decided to just basically give him carte blanche. We said, go on the site, pick two wines that you really want to drink for whatever reason. And I, <laughs> I have to tell you, given the catalog of wines to choose from, those were not the wines that I would have expected. Oh, same. I'm delighted and surprised. <laughs> yes. I think everyone listening will be too. I think it's really refreshing, the the wines that he selected, because I think, you know, he's someone that I think we expect to only be drinking, you know, the, the most expensive, the finest of the fine, the rarest of the rare. And he picked some kind of humble wines, you mm-hmm. know, wines that are, you know, extraordinarily delicious, of course, but wines that are approachable, not only price-wise, but palate-wise to anyone from uh, the, the entry-level drinker, someone who's never touched wine before, to someone that, you know, like him, that's had everything on the planet and then some. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to ask him about his choices. Me too. All right. Well, let's not make everyone wait. And with that, let's drink. Antonio Galoni. Welcome, sir. How are you? Well, it's just absolute pleasure to be with you. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks, Vanessa, for having me. (laughs) Usually I I get to, I listen to you and now I get to be on and I feel I'm just a little nervous, but you know, hopefully it's not a disaster. Oh, well, have you given us a five-star rating? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Maybe I better. Otherwise, I'm going to get all sorts of difficult questions I can't answer. Don't ask me anything complicated. If you have some time later, you want to give us a review, feel free. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Well, speaking of tables being flipped, you definitely flip the switch on us a little bit this afternoon because normally we select the wines for our guests, but given your profession and given your very large uh, encyclopedic knowledge almost uh, of wine, we felt it was only appropriate to give you the keys to the kingdom and select the wines yourself for today. And I have to say, we kind of gave you carte blanche to to select whatever you wanted from the Wine Access site. And I, not that I don't like these wines because I, I very much do, but I, I am surprised by these choices, I have to say. So I guess we can kick it off there. 
why'd you select these wines, Antonio? Well, we might as well talk about the wines um, in question, just in, in case they're not up. But I mean, so the first is a, the Arnott Roberts the Syrah Sonoma Coast, and the second is a Bedrock Old Vines Inn. They're both 19s. And I picked them really for a specific reason, which is, I mean, obviously I looked at your site and you have amazing wines. But you know, I think that really good wine doesn't have to be expensive. That There's something really beautiful about wines that represent the things that we like, that they're handcrafted, that they're artisan, that they're made from beautifully tended vineyards, and that you can still afford to drink on a Tuesday night. It doesn't have to be a special occasion. It doesn't have to be um, some sort of celebratory thing. And I think sometimes for those of us who work in wine, I mean, look, I'm tasting 18 Bordeaux. And I'm not, I'm not saying this to brag or anything, but today we opened Ozone, Cheval Blanc, Angelus, blah, 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 whatever. And, and a lot, many other wines, Le Pen and crazy. And, and that's fine. I mean, I love tasting those wines, but most of us can't afford those wines. And I, I love the simplicity of a, you know, a $30 wine, a $25 wine, a $35 wine that's absolutely delicious that you can drink without thinking about it too much, but that you still get all of the things that we love in great wine. You know, that, mm-hmm. that idea of, of, of a vintage, of a place, of, of people who actually make the wines. It's not, these wines aren't made by corporations. They're not made by consultants. They're not made by, not that there's anything wrong with that either, but, you know, these are handcrafted, small production wines. And I think it's a beautiful thing that a consumer can buy these wines. You know, I, I forget the prices exactly, but they're in the $30 range, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think there's something beautiful about that. So it would have been very, I, mean, I could have picked some, you know, some of the super high-end wines you have on your site, and maybe you would have sent them to me, but (laughs) that just didn't feel right. I really do believe in the idea that wine should be, really good wine should be affordable. So well, we I, would have been fine with whatever you chose, but keep in mind, you know, we get to drink the wines with our guests. So <laughs> whatever well, price point, we're drinking them with you. So, you know, a beautiful $30 wine or <laughs> $1,500 bottle of wine, we are, we are drinking with you. <laughs> okay. Well, now I know for part two. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, move it on up the chain. I got to go, by the way. I got to go. We have to do, I'm sorry. I've got to run. Okay. <laughs> Let's schedule part two. Part two. Ready to go. Sorry, guys. Um, We have two wines because we double fist on this podcast, and I hope that's okay. The second wine is the Bedrock Old Vine Simpendel, also a 2019. Um, Surprisingly, not one that we've done on this podcast, and I love this wine, despite the fact that I don't have a lot of love for Zinfandel. So is this a wine that you would sort of fit into that category of, I sort of think of it as like stealthy simplicity, and I love how you described it because it's a wine that you can enjoy, you can sip it, and just drink it without a lot of thought but if you wanted to dive into it, like there's certainly things to dive into. So do you think this falls into the same category? Yeah. I mean, you know, you're, you're talking about, you know, so this is a bedrock wine company. It's, it's Morgan Peterson and Chris Cottrell. You know, they've got access to tremendous number of sites all over Sonoma and other appellations. This wine is very Zinfandel. It's very beautiful. It's very fruity and delicious. And, you know, 2019 is a tricky vintage because of two things. Uh, One is a little bit of rain in the spring, uh, created a little bit of bloat in some grapes. And so the wines aren't quite as beautiful across the the whole range like they are in 18. Like 18 is a vintage for, especially for Zinfandel and those field blends where you could just throw a dart at the board and you hit a bullseye every time almost. And 19 requires a little bit more selection, but you know, uh, this wine was also bottled during a time of great economic uncertainty for the world. And when, when I tasted this wine, I remember Morgan telling me that he'd put a little bit more of the single vineyard parcels into this wine because he wasn't really sure about what the outlook was going to be like. And, you know, if he could mm. necessarily sell the same amount of his top wines as he would be able to in a normal year, hmm. you know. So Interesting. one of the other reasons why I picked these wines is, you know, when I was learning about wine, one of the rules that people taught me was, buy the least expensive wine from the best producers. And that's what you do in Burgundy. I mean, it's great when you can drink Grand Cru, but that's just not available for most of us economically. So what do you do? You look for the village wine, you look for the Bourgogne. And these are, you know, the American equivalents of of those wines. This is the village level wine, if you will, or the Bourgogne of Bedrock. Mm -hmm. And Mm. you know that every wine that they make is going to be somewhere between outstanding to just like tremendous, right? Yes. And yeah. and so and so that's again getting back to why I picked this wine, but I think when you when you taste it, you you know, you yeah, it's a little bit lighter than their top wines, but that's not a bad thing and it's very Zinfandel and just a lot of character and a lot of personality in a year, 19, where the wines are a little bit more accessible. You know, 18 is a more a more serious vintage. You can cellar those wines, of course. You can cellar these too because they've got great acid, but 19 is just a beautiful vintage for drinking now and you know, this wine shows everything 
thing that I remember when I tasted it a few months ago for the first time. Well, it's a treat to have it and an even bigger treat to have it with you. And I love the inside baseball on that. I didn't know that that he uh, had incorporated a few of those single vineyards in here. So an especially delicious wine with a little extra uh, inside info. Always appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, a little bit more than usual in this in this vintage. So, I mean, that's there's always a reason why things are good, you know? So. <laughs> yeah. No, and it's, it's also why I think talk to your friends in the wine industry, talk to the producers. You know, sometimes they'll give you those little tidbits of information without a lot of pulling. So uh, I, I want to back up a little bit because I think it's really interesting. Throughout this podcast, Vanessa and I have talked a lot about the fact that neither of us came from wine drinking households. Right. Vanessa came up in a music household. I grew up with a, an engineer for a father and an accountant for a mother. And you know, the best we had in our cellar closet was like Sonoma, Contrera, or um, probably not even that, um, boxed wine probably. And you did not. You grew up in a in a household that had wine. Your parents sold Italian wine at retail shop. It, I read that your grandmother loved Burgundy. It was reported that your dad said that there are two great wines in the world, Barolo and Champagne. And given the professional success of those in both camps, I do include myself in that camp, uh, as does Venice, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but others as well. I mean, there's plenty of wine professionals who didn't come from wine drinking households, and there's plenty that have, like yourself. Do you think there is an advantage to growing up in a wine Wine drinking household, and do you think that you've benefited from it? Well, I mean, I think it's like a lot of things. Um, certainly didn't hurt. Yes, I grew up with it, but what I really loved was looking at these labels and wanting to understand what every word meant. And uh, these French wines that my grandparents would open on Sunday hmm. for Sunday lunch, uh, I wanted to know what Cornas was. What what is Gigondas? Is that a grape? Is it a place? I mean, I didn't know. I wanted to learn, and I wanted to know what every word on a on a label meant. I mean, I think it's an advantage for sure because. I was very lucky that my parents introduced me to the kinds of wines that most people get to a little bit later in life. The normal trajectory mm -hmm. for a young person is you start drinking wine in, in a bar as kind of a replacement for a cocktail. That's kind of very typical, right? And those tend to be wines that they can be left open for several days. So they've probably got quite a bit of stuff in them. And th they're delicious, yummy, but not necessarily complex. And then what happens when people get into wine? They tend to sort of go after the bigger, more immediate wines. And what happens to consumers as they get older? They end up, I mean, we see this all the time with people who bought all sorts of wines that they don't like anymore because their tastes have evolved. <laughs> and yeah. so I guess I was lucky in that, yep. yeah, my dad told me right away, like champagne and, and Barolo, <laughs> you know? So, you know, I guess I skipped kind of a phase that maybe a lot of other people go to. But, but I mean, you know, for me, it's just being around it. But, you know, that's just the same as somebody who grows up in a musical household, somebody who grows up in an artistic household, somebody who grows up with parents who like to cook. Sure, there's some part of it that's just very naturally a part of who you are. And yeah, I mean, I've been around wine uh, my whole life, but not necessarily wine of this level. My family is mostly Sicilian and both sides of the family are very poor, but my dad's family, like like beyond poor. And my grandfather, when I was a kid and I'd go visit in Sicily for lunch, he would drink a mug of white wine. <laughs> and this was white wine in a jug, so bought from a farm. That's awesome. So it was bulk wine, but probably very natural because it wouldn't have been able to last. You know, I mean, in a, in a jug like that, it was probably, you know, very inexpensive wine that wasn't even worth putting stuff into because anything you would put into would be worth more than the actual wine itself. So jug wine, and he would put a peach in it. Um, like a sliced peach? Yeah, like a sliced peach. And okay. And what I always took away from that is something really important, which is there was a time when these beverages, wine, spirits, whatever, people drank them for their calories. I mean, today everybody like wishes, gee, I wish I was like 10 pounds lighter, you know? But <laughs> but back a couple generations ago, which is not that long in the history of the world, right? It's very recent. Right. These were beverages that people drank for their caloric sustenance, for their nutritional value. There was a time when wine and spirits were actually cleaner than water from a health standpoint. Mm -hmm. And right. so for me, it, yes, I, I grew up around wine, but it wasn't necessarily DRC or Conterno Monfortino or whatever. It was the idea that wine is an everyday accompaniment to the meal, which is probably why I chose these wines today. And that there's something about them as being part of the table, just uh, just like anything else you might have. You've got your salt and your pepper and your olive oil or your salad dressing or whatever, and you've got a glass of wine. It's just part of the table every day. Right. Yes, if we're celebrating, we might open something slightly better. But the idea that wine is an everyday part of life, an everyday companion to the table. And I learned that from my grandfather in Sicily when I was just a little kid. And so being surrounded by wine has a lot of different dimensions. It's not just about these wines that we review here for our publication, but it's about the idea that 
really you're dealing with a food, uh, you're dealing with something for the table. And for sure in Europe, the idea of wine is much more linked to the idea to food culture than necessarily like alcohol, you know, tobacco and firearms. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Do you think that's the next frontier for the United States is is getting it more linked to food? Well, I mean, I think that obviously there's just been a massive explosion in the food culture here. You know, my parents did sell wine, but they also sold other things. They they sold sun-dried tomatoes and extra virgin olive oil and balsamic vinegar and things that nobody knew about in the 80s that, you know, now you go in, I mean, yes, in metropolitan areas, those were things that chefs knew and that people knew, but no, but now those things are sort of on menus. You know, people know what these things are. People know what Parmigiano Reggiano is. You see it on, you know, it'll be listed on some menu or arugula or these things now are part of menu descriptions. And there's obviously been a massive explosion of food interest driven by boom in restaurants and celebrity chefs and television and all of that. And along that comes wine. And so people are much more, I think, informed now. And it's a wonderful thing. And yeah, I think that there's still, I mean, the per capita consumption of wine in this country is still very low compared to it's about a quarter of what it is in Europe. But I think that the, there's still a lot of room in this country for there to be a, a significant boom in wine culture. So yeah, I think there's still a long ways to go. Mm. So I, I'd like to ask you a little bit about sort of music and wine and the correlations there. And, you know, as Amanda mentioned at the beginning of the the podcast, you know, I, I did not grow up in a wine family. I, I was raised by two classical musicians and that was my whole childhood was, you know, kind of sitting in the, the back row of an empty theater, listening to orchestra rehearsals and stuff and came to wine later. But I actually think, and this is the question that I'd like to pose back to you. I think that having a music background, learning how to like use my senses in a way, appreciate things with my eyes and my ears and have a feeling that's a result of it makes me a better taster. And I know that you're a very accomplished musician yourself, opera, jazz, composition, I believe. So do you think that sort of having an appreciation for both sort of helps the other? Well, I think you just, you're living in a world of sensory perception, you know, as opposed to, let's say, um, if you were an accountant, you'd be really focused on numbers and spreadsheets and analytical things, you know, and you're trying to make sense of things on that sort of level. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I think when you're, in a certain field like wine or or music, you're dealing with your all of your senses. And I think wine tasting is a lot more than just what's in the glass. I mean, that's why I think traveling is so important. That's why I think seeing things is so important, talking to people. That gives you the picture. That's the whole picture. It's not just red cherries versus black cherries versus kirsch or something macerated in spirits. It's about the totality of things. Right. I've had a very intense relationship with music my entire life. Sometimes it's been very central and sometimes it's not been very central. And in the periods where it's more a bigger part of my life, I notice that my writing actually changes a lot. It becomes, I'm thinking much more about composition. I'm thinking about how my articles are organized. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about how words sound together. So I think there's a lot of it that's, it's not just the sensory perception of wine, but it's sort of how you organize things. I, you know, my articles are organized like like a symphony. It's like, there's like this piece, there's this piece, there's this piece, maybe it's five sections. But I, I'm always thinking compositionally about how my articles are structured. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, that's definitely obviously related to music. And then the other thing is I like to be succinct because <laughs> when I was in college once, I was rehearsing with my one of my ensembles, my own compositions. It was improvisational music. And you know how jazz works. You, you know, you write the head, which is the, the melody, and then the musicians improvise. And the musicians are having a conversation with each other, basically, and taking turns improvising. And you're listening to something somebody else plays, and then you you sort of take that and and then do something else with it. And then somebody takes one of your motifs, and then they develop on that. And that's what jazz is, basically. And so during one of these rehearsals from one of my recitals, I was improvising and it was just kind of a jumbled mess, I guess. And my keyboardist, who's like an unbelievable musician, he stopped the rehearsal, which is like really uncommon, in the middle of the tune. And he's like, look, you got to just say what you got to say, get in and get out. And after that, I was like, okay, fine. <laughs> I, I mean, this is great. You know, sometimes you need to get your butt kicked, you know, to be perfectly candid. And, and that was just a real awakening. And I was like, you know, from that moment on, oh, yeah. I've thought about everything about trying to be concise. If I can remove sentences or words, I remove them. And it's more about how can you express what you want to express with the least amount of motion, mm. the least amount of words, least amount of sentences, the most economical way. So 
music is a, a big influence on a lot of different levels, the sensory level, but also the composition level. And then just thinking about how you want to put something across a thought. It's the introduction to an article. How's that play out? Or it's the tasting notes or, you know, other stuff that we write, you know, maps and other stuff. So it's so interesting listening to you talk about it. It just, everything just sort of clicked for me in that moment. And my only question to that is when you're writing something and you're creating that composition, are you saying what you're writing out loud to hear how it's sounding? Or do you just allow the thoughts to reverberate in your own head? That's another thing. I also write a lot of my articles. So here I'm talking about like the introduction article. So like, um, if you were to look at our, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think the la- the last big thing I published was 2017 Barolo. So that would be the introduction to the article, which is like, you know, how are the wines? What's the growing season like? What's the weather like? You know, that kind of stuff. I compose that all in my head first. And a lot of times I'll write it the day before we publish the article. <laughs> and I just sit down for like six hours without any distractions and I just type it out. And that's the way a lot of people write music, which is you compose it in your head. And then yeah. like the actual composition is in your mind. And then the putting it on a piece of paper electronically, that's not the composition. That's just the the recording of something. But the composition has happened in your mind. You're thinking, okay, first I want to talk about this. Then I want to talk about that. Then I want to talk about that. Mm. I want to talk about that. And then maybe there's something topical that's going on, some sort of movement or some issue in a region that's happening. Or maybe it's some articles have been about... Um, group of young producers or or some sort of thing that's kind of unique to that particular moment that gets highlighted. But the actual article gets typed in like one shot in like a very intense, condensed period of time. That's so fascinating. And then it gets edited, of course. It's not like, you know, like Mozart, they used to say Mozart would do that and it would be perfect. And (laughs) Beethoven was like rewritten like continually because he was a perfectionist. So I'm not saying that like you write it and then it's like it gets published. I mean, it gets gets edited, of course, it gets corrected, but 95% of it gets written in one shot. That's amazing. So I read that you, um, obviously younger days, worked as a waiter. So was that in Milan? I worked as a waiter in Boston. You know, I went to college at Berkeley and and I burned out after four years of nonstop. And, you know, arts are really difficult. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, there's other professions, I think, where you can, your progress can be more linear or it can be more determined by things that you do. You know, like, let's say if you're in a corporate kind of environment, there's promotions, there's levels, there's very tangible goals. Your manager will say to you, if you want to get your promotion, you have to do A, B, C, and D, then you do that, or, or maybe you don't, but it's very easy. Not You shouldn't say it's easy, but it's just there's markers. Mm-hmm. You know, the path is clear. You're going to succeed sometimes. You're going to fall short other times, but but there's kind of, there's a path. And, and you're also in those sorts of environments, you're also often surrounded by people who are on similar paths. And so you can help each other out. Hopefully people are helping each other and not fighting against each other. But, you know, you can also benchmark and sort of kind of get a sense of where you are, what you need to work on, and so on and so forth. When you're dealing with the arts, you're talking about things that are just very amorphous. It's You can have periods of tremendous creativity, mm-hmm. plateau for long periods of time, maybe even feel like you're regressing, and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden um, find yourself at a different level. I mean, you know, I, I uh, stopped playing music for a number of years. And then when I started again, I noticed that my ear was better. My musicianship was better. My ability to learn things were, was better. And I'm like, how is this possible? I haven't picked up a guitar in like 15 years. How How is it possible? And it's possible because your being is growing, even if you're not aware of it. Being an artist is a very heavy thing because you cannot separate person from the product. <laughs> so yeah. like I can write an article and you can decide that it's good or it's not good, but it's like the article. And it might hurt my feelings if somebody says, well, you really missed this vintage. Fair enough. But if you're an actress or you're a singer and you have a bad show, that's like you. That's not like <laughs> yeah. this other thing. And it's a very hard life. Oh, I remember. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a very, you know, yeah. It's it's a very hard kind of way of life. And so I think so the arts have these periods that are It hurts every time. <laughs> uh, unpredictable. And so anyway, after college I was very burned out and I had kind of reached this plateau and I was very young and stupid and I didn't really have the perspective to sort of sort of wait it out. You know, 21, 22, you know, you don't know anything about life. But anyway, I started waiting tables to you know, to pay the bills. But this was in the early 90s. And this is when I had a chance to taste a lot of California wines and very beginning of those wines. I mean, we sold the first vintages of Harlan Estate, early vintages of Peter Michael, early vintages of Corison, Schaefer, you know, Frog's Leap. I got to taste all those wines. Right. Because it was sort of like back then there really weren't 
psalms in those kinds of restaurants. I mean, I even worked at a very famous Boston restaurant that didn't even have a psalm. I mean, it was very early days for that kind of culture. So basically, like whoever was a waiter who kind of knew a little bit about wine was the person that would get sent over to a table that had an interest about the wine list. Mm -hmm. You know, and I loved that. So like I was the person on our team who like knew the most about wine. And so that they would send me over to sell the bottles of, you know, Harlan and whatever. That was kind of my first introduction to California wine. So a lot of times people like when Bob Parker asked me to review California, people were like, who is this person that doesn't know anything about California wine? He's just like Italian wine. <laughs> but the reality is I had a lot of experience with those wines years before, not necessarily writing them or reviewing them, but waiting tables and restaurants was a great experience and a great great exposure to those wines, you know, when they were in the, in the very, very early days of a lot of those labels. So, Did you have any epiphany bottles at that time? Like, were there, do you remember now, you know, were there standouts? I mean, there were, there were a bunch. I mean, I, I mean, I think that, you know, one wine that really was life-changing was um, a BV Vineyards Cabernet. Mm. I can't remember if it was 75 or 76. I'd like to say 75. I think 75 is a super famous one, but it was just the first kind of more mature California wine that I'd mm. ever had. You know, I tasted those wines young and they, obviously they were, they were beautiful wines, but you know, there's something about when you can taste wine in that next stage of its evolution, the stage of its evolution where the youthful intensity has started to fade. You've got those beautiful aromatics, the tannins are softer and, you know, some of those wines can be very explosive, even though they're a little older. And I remember yeah. a friend of mine gave me this bottle of BV from the mid-70s, and I was like, wow. <laughs> um, I mean, that was in, the, in about 2000. That was the first really great aged California wine that I had. But, you know, my, when my parents had the shop, they would bring home all sorts of wines for dinner. And, you know, you couldn't really afford this today because the price of wine is so much higher. And there's also, you know, you don't get huge allocations. My dad would come home with a bottle of Bruno Giacosa Barbaresco or Gaia or Tignanello or Ciparello or these wines that they, they were selling. And, and these days, if you had a retail shop, you'd want to sell every last bottle because you only get six or 12 or whatever. Plus the fact that they're, they're expensive. And back then they cost, they weren't cheap or, or anything, but the price of wine was in a totally different dimension. I mean, you'd have to really be very well off to be able to allow yourself that kind of Sort of it's Tuesday night, let's pop open a Jacosa Barbaresco. I mean, that just doesn't happen, but it used to. And my dad's a great cook too. So, you know, like I would also see how, you know, like I would taste a wine like Ceparello and think, God, this wine is so acidic and it's like really, you know, <laughs> uh, hard to taste. And then my dad serves his like rabbit and I have the wine with a rabbit and I'm like, oh, I get it, <laughs> you know? So it's not just the wine, but the whole culture of kind of how wine and food, you know, sort of interact. And I think that that's a big part of this. I mean, that you know, you know, always have to have food with wine, but uh, it's obviously very enhancing and very complimentary. So, so there were a lot of wines like that, that I had that they weren't necessarily epic, you know, like 1945 RC handwritten label, whatever. I mean, but, but even just understanding that, you know, Sangiovese, like you need to open that, those wines like two or three hours in advance and to really enjoy them at their fullest as a consumer, you know, you really want to have those wines at the table because if you just taste a wine like that without any context, the, those wines can seem a little thin. They can seem a little bit light, but when you have it with the right food, that both of those things are just explosive in their beauty. So. Lots of epiphany bottles. So you taste so many wines. I mean, you were saying earlier you're tasting, you know, the 18 Bordeaux. You probably spit out more wine today than most people drink like in a year. Um, so do you ever just get really sick of it? You know, I don't. I mean, I, I, every vintage is different. And I think also it's kind of my internal barometer as to when a vintage is good. There's an incredible, I find it anyway, really exciting when you can taste all of the top wines from a region sort of back to back, whether it's on the road or, you know, in, in the house in this COVID. Like if I'm tasting Santa Emilion, I mean, you just think about how many incredible properties there are in that village that are like next to each other or down the road from each other or whatever. And when the vintages are good, I don't ever get tired mm. because you're just energized. It's like, oh, that's Cloforte. Well, great. Well, let me, let me taste Canon. That's like right by there. And then let me taste Bel Air Monange. And it's just, it's exciting. It's thrilling. And you can say, okay, well, this one's a little bit more linear. This one's a little bit more generous. Okay. And that's enormously fun. You know, it, it's tiring when, when it's a difficult vintage or, you know, the wines are imbalanced and they're kind of physically hard to taste. Mm. Um, but when the wines are good, 
you know, I don't, I don't get tired of it all. You know, the only region where I think for me anyway, personally, I mean, look, everybody's different. You know, every, every, I always say every body, meaning every physical body is different, right? I mean, I can go to, well, you don't, don't see people working out at the gym too much anymore, but you know, right. somebody might be able to bench press twice as much as me. That doesn't mean that it's impossible. It just is impossible for me. Just like I can taste a hundred wines in a day. That doesn't mean it's impossible. It just may not be possible for somebody else. Jeez. And, but the person who I've seen taste the most the biggest tastings was Steve Tanzer, who would taste wow. something like 200 Piedmont wines in a day, which I, I don't know if I could do, but I, I don't, I wouldn't want to do it. You know, there's kind of also a kind of like, do you even want to do this? I don't, but you know, he used to review those wines every two years. So he kind of had to do these big tastings and I would go there and somebody would say, well, we just did this tasting for Tanzer and he tasted this like two vintages. I'm like, are you out of your mind? Like, how can he do that? <laughs> so I think every person, every body, every person is is different, but the one region where I think that for me is really challenging is is Champagne because I think you know you're dealing with the combined effect of mm-hmm. the high acidity of the wine, the bubbles, and the residual sugar, and that's the one region where I really try to limit the number of wines in a day because it's just exhausting. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's just after you know I've done tastings of a hundred plus champagnes in a day, and it's, you, you just don't feel good afterwards. You know, it's just not. Mm. But I don't get tired of it. I think it's as I said. I think it's fun, and I think it's. Again, the idea that every vintage is a new beginning, you know, it's kind of like, okay, now what? Yeah. It's like, wipe the slate clean. It's like 18. Okay, guess what? The 19s are going to start showing up in a month. And it's like, you're in school. It's like, you're learning constantly. That's another thing about wine that I think is wonderful for your listeners to sort of consider as opposed to, so there's not that many pursuits that can really stay with you your entire life. You know, education and wine is lifelong. You're never going to get tired of of learning. There's always going to be a new region that you don't know. There's going to be a new vintage. There's going to be new producers. And it's a beautiful pursuit that that I think can accompany you throughout your entire life of learning, of education, hopefully travel, seeing some places, you know, with your own eyes, eating the food. I mean, that's another thing that I think is really important is understanding, like you really want to go to Piedmont in September for the porcini and in November for the truffles and you want to eat the tomatoes in Tuscany, but in the summer, you know, not in the yeah. winter because they're not from there in the winter, you know, and Pinci and Montalcino and, and, and understanding cuisine of different places, the French cheeses and all, all this stuff. And there's just so much to learn around wine and the culture of wine, the food culture, the travel culture. And I think that's one of the things that makes it fascinating. So I don't know how you could possibly get tired of it. There's just so much to learn. I mean, there's regions I don't cover that I've never been to that I would love to go to. Like, I would love to take a week and go to Alsace mm. or go somewhere in the Loire. Every time we publish an article in Argentina, I'm like, God, I just want to go there for a week or to Chile. So I don't know how you could possibly get tired. How could you get tired? Yeah. I mean, there's just so much to know. And, I, and I'm blissfully ignorant of so many other regions. It's refreshing to hear that. I, I think we see scores and we see reviews, but we forget there's an actual person that wrote that. There's an actual person with thoughts that went into it. And sometimes it's, at least for me, it's refreshing to hear this from you because even I get a little jaded. Like you see, you read reviews and you're like, oh, like, you know, Venice thought that and this person thought that. But like, but talking with you, it, it, it sort of, it reinvigorates me to learn that you're so in love with what you do and you're so in love with wine. And it, even after all of these years, you still find so naturally the things that you love so much about it. Yeah, it's a fantastic way to be able to make a living. I mean, it's a lot of work. I've never worked harder in my life, but you know, it's great. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> so if you were speaking to a consumer, what advice would you give in terms of someone who wants to improve their palate? Well, you know, I think that hopefully now as the world starts to open up, it's possible for people to get together again. I think that that's important to exchange views with with your friends or peers. That makes it possible for you to say, you know, eight people get together for dinner, four couples or whatever, and everybody brings a couple of bottles of wine and that's an opportunity to taste 10 or 12 wines. And there's something about the comparison of wine. You know, I, I think Burgundy for me is the best school because there's a few things, right? There's no irrigation and therefore there's less that you can do in the vineyard as opposed to say California. The reds, for example, are all Pinot Noir. Let's leave aside the occasional, you know, Gamay or, or Pestagram, but for the, you know, the wines that matter to the world, 99% are Pinot Noir. So let's just say it's Pinot Noir. And if you go to an estate like Gislaine Barto, let's say, she might make nine or 10 different cuvées of Chambon Musigny. So for those producers, they generally make the wines the same way. You know it's Pinot Noir. You know Pinot Noir is never blended with another grape. So what you've done now is you've removed a bunch of variables, and what's left is the place. And that is very different from, say, tasting Napa Valley wines where you can 
blend varieties, shade cloth and dry farming, I mean, and irrigation and a lot of other things. They give a, a, a vineyard manager and a winemaker things to combat nature, which, you know, I'm not saying it's better or worse, but it's, there's just more, there's more variables. When you go to a place like Piedmont, I mean, it's a place like Burgundy, I'll talk to, about Piedmont in a second, but when you go to a place like Burgundy, you're really isolating the place. And that is just an unbelievable education. Like this wine is a little more linear. Why is it? This wine's a little richer, fatter. Is it because there's more clay? Is it where it is on the slope? You know, and I think Burgundy is an incredible education for, for understanding place. Uh, Piedmont's interesting because the wines spend several years in the cellar. So oftentimes you can, you can taste multiple vintages of a wine. And that's one of the very few regions in the world where you can taste three or four vintages of, of a wine. You can't do that. There's almost nowhere in the world where you can do that systematically. That's where I learned a lot about wine was in Piedmont because I would go to these places and you could taste three, four, five vintages of every wine, like year after, you know, two, three, four times a year, year after year after year after year. That's also a great education. So for a consumer, bringing it back to, to the, your question, what would I say to consumers? Taste as much as possible. And one of the best ways to taste as much as possible is to put together tastings with your friends and say, okay, well, we're going to taste um, California, you know, Zinfandels or, or field blends. Let's everybody bring two bottles, you know, or everybody, everybody brings a bottle. Let's open eight or 10 of those and see what the differences are. And, and then, you know, you have to do a little bit of work. I mean, there's no, I mean, I think it's work is not the right word. You have to do a little bit of research and, and maybe you under, you read a little bit and understand which ones of these wines are Zinfandel and which of these wines might be field blends, because a lot of those, you know, as you guys know, those, those, especially the older vineyards in, in Sonoma, um, for an American wine to be variety labeled, it has to be 75%. But we know that the old vineyards in Sonoma and also Napa um, that we often refer to as Zinfandel are really more accurately described as Zinfandel-based field blends. So ones are maybe more Zinfandel and which ones might be more field blend. You know, I think getting together with your friends and opening eight or 10 Zinfandels or eight or 10 Syrahs or Sangioveses or right. whatever is is really instructive. And the wines don't have to be, you know, expensive. You could do a you do a fabulous tasting with Chianti Classico and open eight or 10 of those wines and they're $20, $25 a bottle. It's eminently affordable as a fabulous evening of education. So I think you want to taste as much as possible. Obviously, if you have the ability to, and the time to travel, that's invaluable. You're obviously seeing places. Uh, you know, I think about a place like Chablis, for example, where even the most humble restaurant will have beautiful bottles of things like Dovisat or, or Ravenot at like the real price, not the market price that becomes inflated. But that Yes, I've heard this. <laughs> you you can go and you can just say, I just want to have, you know, uh, even if you have a salad outside because it's the summer, but you can eat the, mo eat the most simplest food and just enjoy a really nice, beautiful bottle of wine, maybe a Premier Cru or even a Grand Cru, because one of the challenges with wine is for young people is that the benchmarks are becoming, with few exceptions, they're hard to afford, you know? So our parents' generation, um, you know, people could buy a case of first growth Bordeaux and they often did. And today that's just outside of the reach of most people. But if you go to many people, but if you go to the places, especially Burgundy, because Burgundy, as you know, has the most kind of post chateau, post domain kind of market appreciation. Mm -hmm. You can go to these towns and you can sit there and you can have, I mean, Chablis, I think of, because it's one of my favorite places to go, but just go outside and, 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 these restaurants are very uh, not in any way pretentious, you know, simple brasseries or whatever, and and have a have a bottle of wine from a reference point producer. Know what the Dovisat house style is, or the Ravenau house style is, or what a Premier Crew is from one of these people, or, or the other producers. I mean, there's a lot, Patrick Pugh's, and uh, I mean, there, there's just a whole litany of them. Um, Chablis, you know, Fev has a ton of single vineyard wines, and so I think being able to travel. When you can do that is another great way to learn and to say, yeah, I've been to Chablis, I've been to Piedmont, I've been to Napa Valley, I've been to Sonoma. Um, and I just think about yeah. wonderful restaurants, you know, like, I mean, I've tasted some great California wines at restaurants like, you know, Single Thread, you know, for example, where Psalm always brings wines that are like, yeah, you know, I think a really great Psalm often picks wines that like they like I'm sure that they're on their list but you would never find them because like you would have to go through hours and hours and hours but they'll bring you some 1985 ridge you know whatever wine that's costs nothing and is delicious you know I've had Aldo Somme at La Bernardin you know like open 
wines from the 70s that are on it. I mean, they're on the list and they're they're priced properly to what he paid for them, but you would never see it there because the list is like an encyclopedia. Yeah. And I think going to really nice restaurants and having, um, doesn't have to be necessarily that level, but just to say, you know, trusting a professional to sort of pick things for you is also a great education. I've tasted a lot of great wines that people have opened. They don't, not necessarily that expensive, but there is that bizarre Portuguese wine from the mid nineties. That's beautiful. There is that wacky Santa Lucia Highlands sparkling wine that you would have never tasted otherwise. You know, there's so much. Yeah. And I think that those are, I think just living a, a life that's full of wine and food and experiences around travel. That's how you learn. And it's how much fun is that? Yeah. Well, it's the most fun and it's great advice at that. And I, I, I think you're spot on. I think when people can travel to the places that these wines are made, it changes everything. I mean, it, it, it shifts the dynamic in a way that we can never explain to someone who's never done it before. And moving to Napa Valley, and I know, Vanessa, you feel the same way. It totally shifted my perspective on not just Napa Valley, but on how I think about wine, how I think about tasting wine, um, learning about wine. Everything's sort of, when you meet the people and you see the place and you understand to some degree the causality behind the wines that we're drinking on the table, it really sort of illuminates things in a different way. And so I knew that before, but I know it so much more now being a resident of Napa. And I'm so glad that you said that because you you couldn't be more right. I mean, everything from doing a tasting where you eliminate some variables to traveling to the region to trusting the Psalm. I mean, those are the three. I mean, that's that's the way that we learn about wine in the way that I think the three of us can all agree is probably the best way. I don't know, Vanessa, do you agree? I totally agree. Yeah. I actually wanted to ask you another question about music, if that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Can I just add one more thing? Sure. Uh, I could talk to you about music all day, but yeah. you know, when I was first getting into wine, what I would do is I would book some visits at wineries and then I would try to taste as many wines from those wineries as I could before. If you really want to learn, one of the best things you can do is try to visit some wineries and show up prepared because people really respond. Mm. Like if you just want to go to like the famous winery to check it off your list, and you can get that tasting. I'm sure it's a fantastic experience. But if you show up to a winery and you've just had like three vintages of some wine, one of their wines, and you can really ask in-depth questions and really interact with the person that's in front of you, the whole dynamic changes. Because one of the things about wine is people are extraordinarily generous. I've had people open all sorts of crazy wines for me because they just want me to taste them or they <laughs> want to share them with me or there's something special. So wine people in general, I think, are very generous. And if you're inclined to go and travel and visit wineries and increase your knowledge and you do a little bit of work, your return will be 10x. Because you know, if you sit down with a winemaker and, and they know that you know their wines, yeah. The likelihood that they'll open other things for you or they're maybe let you taste some barrel samples or whatever. Yeah. It, it just increases exponentially. And I think that that's the real fun is actually you can buy a bottle of wine. I mean, that just has a price. I mean, I think the fun is the experiences that you can't value. Like you want to taste wine out of the barrel, the winemaker, one on one. Like there's no yeah. value. There's no price for that. That's a priceless experience. Right. And there's places where you can do that, even in Napa Valley. And I think that that's where you can really understand a wine in its nascent form. Then you can buy it two years later and say, I tasted that wine in the barrel. It's very cool. Yeah. So anyway, sorry. It is very Vanessa. cool. Oh, no, not at all. You wanted to ask me No, something. that was, I'm glad that you um, elaborated on that topic. I'm curious, and this is really fun for me. So thanks for indulging me because, you know, this is really a treat. But so how much do you still play or sing? You know, how much time do you have to actually still devote to that with as busy as you are with wine? Well, I'm, Honestly, just picked up a guitar before we record. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I probably play music several hours. So five seconds, five seconds. <laughs> I, I would say I play music several hours a day, every day, at least three or four hours a day. Okay. On, uh, on the weekends, almost the whole day, probably. Wow. I mean, like many hours, like eight. I mean, a lot. And then uh, during the weekday, probably two or three hours, a little bit in the morning, a little bit in the afternoon. You know, some people have like a stress ball, like on their desk, like yeah. if I'm having kind of a stressful day, I'll just like take 10 minutes and go, and go play some music, you know, it's a kind of a release. But I, I think it's, uh, for me, it's like just part of a personality. I mean, I've been playing music since I was 11 or 12. So I think it's important to have other outlets for your energy and your creativity. You know, uh, there's other things that are also important to me, like 
trying to stay fit, especially with this lifestyle of, I mean, right now there's not a lot of eating out, but you know, there is at other times it's very easy to, you know, I mean, you're in these beautiful places and these beautiful parts of the world. And it's like, yeah, I mean, of course I want to go to press and eat a huge steak, but you know, if I go with my daughter, she'll eat half of it. <laughs> so that's better. <laughs> um, but there's other things that I think are important in balance. But I mean, for me, music is very, it's just very fundamentally a part of who I am. It's you know, So I play music, you know, several hours a day and then singing, you know, I studied mostly classical singing in Milan. And and that though is a different kind of an endeavor that is, that requires a different kind of commitment. I think that, I don't think that that's something, you know, you can play a, an instrument, piano or guitar or drums or whatever, three or four hours a day. I mean, I told one of my teachers, very famous Nashville guitar player, and he asked me how many hours I practiced. And he was like, like just blown away by the number of hours. And I think that there's some instruments where you can do that, but singing is different. Singing requires also, you can't taste these kinds of wines. I mean, you're, you know, probably somebody would say I'm like massively dehydrated and it's just not really conducive to singing. So <laughs> operatic singing, I think you could sing like, you know, rock music or pop. I could probably do that. But I think singing is different. Singing is one of those things where it has to be the central part of your life. And I have friends who do this professionally and their lives are like 90% they're singing and 10% everything else combined. And I think that there's some pursuits that are like that. That's why I don't sing classical music anymore. It's just too, it's, it, that is really demanding. I completely feel the same way. And I, I'm sure this happens to you too, right? We are at a party or something and someone's like, oh, just just sing, just like sing an aria. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like opera is not like riding a bike, yeah. you know? And for, and for me at this point, not being in practice, like I don't really want to know what I sound like. <laughs> 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 I rather have this memory of what I sounded like when I actually did practice, you know, when it was 90% of my life. What if they asked you to sing Taylor Swift? <laughs> Vanessa. Maybe. Yeah, well, we all sing Taylor Swift in the car. Let's admit it. Car in the shower. That's where Taylor belongs. Yeah. Or in the shower. Yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of things that go along with singing as you know, that I used to go to see somebody to help me with my breathing and posture. These are very common things. It's not just about vocalizing and singing an aria. It's like, because your body is your instrument. So like I would have very strict sleep regimen, for example, that's kind of what it takes to perform at a high level, unless you are somebody who's enormously gifted naturally and that was never me so i always you know but there are obviously if you if you are given a gift that is just magnificent you have a little bit more wiggle room but for most people i mean it's like being a professional athlete i mean you hear these stories about athletes who like they even train on like holidays and saturdays and sundays they're like it's like constant you know their diet is a year-long thing their fitness regime is that's what it takes in my opinion so. so I know you love your career in wine. We talked about that. But do you ever regret not being a professional musician? No, I don't think about it that way. I think everything is everything that happens in life has a reason and it's all part of like your uh your entire trajectory. And, you know, there's nothing to say that I couldn't I might not choose in ten years to do something different. You know, I don't know. This is great. It's a good outlook. Uh, I love tasting all these wines. You know, the the other thing that we do that is a kind of a in between tasting wine and being a musician is this mapping project that we do because it's related to wine, but it's not tasting wine, and it's there's a creative side of that. I think the worst thing is if you feel like you're not using your your skills or your interests, and I think there's a lot of ways to use to use those. I feel you know I love working on our maps, and I think that that probably addresses a lot of my like artistic desires, even though it may not necessarily be playing music. You know, when we're sitting there thinking about the design or when I'm writing the text on the back, it's wine, but it's not tasting hot under the bottles of young wine. So I just think about lots of different things and, you know, hopefully life is long and you can do lots of different things at different paths. So I, I don't have any regrets. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you my, this. Uh, the reason I don't have any regrets, you know, I want to tell you the story that is not my insight, but I think it was a great answer. You know, we had this Borolo tasting a few, like about a month ago and somebody asked Roberto Conterno if he ever regretted not bottling a Monfortino or, if, or bottling it, you know, if he ever regretted his decision. And he said, I never regretted my decision. He goes, I spend years thinking about this, thinking about it. And then I make a decision with everything, all of the information that I have available to me, I use and I make a decision and then that's it. And then I never regret it. And I, I just thought, you know, that's just so interesting to hear that put that way, because what you're basically saying is, you know, measure like three times, you know, think about it really carefully. And then that's your decision. And you've made the best decision you can with the information that was available to you at that moment. 
And if you don't do that, then you're, you might be second guessing yourself like throughout your entire life. And that's just very destructive. You know, I think it could be really, really bad for you sort of psychologically. So I just think you make a decision based on what's available to you. And then you never look back yeah. on that. Is that. And things always have a way of working out. Is that how you made your decision? I mean, it sounds like music never really left your life and it sounds, you know, your path wasn't linear to any degree, but that initial shift between being a musician and then moving into the investment banking world and then moving into the wine world, was that measure three times cut once or was that just sort of a, a gradual thing? And then also, I mean, Vanessa, you and I have talked about this. We we shifted careers and I had a lot of mental struggle with that. At the time, I didn't really mm -hmm. realize what I was going through. I, I think it was more in retrospect, but was that a major decision? Was that a measure three times cut once? And was it difficult? Not necessarily do you regret it, but was it difficult? Well, I think those are two different questions. The, the one thing is, you know, I think everybody has something they can do that other people can't do. You have to figure out what you're really good at. And when you go to music school, you know what happens, right? Like you're like a teenager in high school and you're like the hot shot in your little small town. And then you go to like a big school and you're like an ant, okay? And you notice that the people who are really good, like really good, they're the people who have Fs in class and who are never in school because they're busy doing stuff. <laughs> and I went to really good music school, but that doesn't make me a very good musician. I also went to really good business school, but that doesn't make me a good business person or entrepreneur. No, it's just, a, it's academic. I think when I started spending time on wine, I realized that I had incredible memory recall. When I taste the wine, what immediately comes into my mind is all the preceding vintages of that wine that I've tasted. Like, is it more like the like the 16? Is it more like the five? Is it more like the seven? And when I started spending time on wine, I realized why I wasn't a professional musician because I could have made it as a professional musician, but I would have been the kind of musician who was hmm. created only by, because I had average talent, right? So when you have average talent, you have to work much harder than everybody else. And I believe a lot in the work ethic because most people are lazy and most people will give up. And if you are persistent and you work hard, you will eventually surpass people who have a lot of talent and who don't work hard, in my estimation. Now, if you have a lot of talent and you work hard, that's insuperable. But a lot of times people who are very talented, they've never had to work. And so they just coast on their natural talent and eventually that runs out. And the people who have a little bit less talent have that and they work hard and they, they eventually will surpass you. And I had this happen to me like in school, like I was very good at languages and I never studied French because I Spanish is my first language and I never studied French. I just, I just coasted on my natural talent. And then eventually the kids who studied all, they all blew me out of the water, you know, and it was a really good life lesson at a young age. So you can't just coast on your natural talent. I didn't have that in music. I had average talent, but I had good work ethic. So I could have made it probably to some level. But when I started working in wine, it was so natural to me. Maybe as you referenced earlier, because of my background, I was like, oh, if I had had this kind of ability in music, that's, I would have been a musician. It's just natural for me. It, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's easy, but it just comes uh, naturally. So like if you go to music school, like a teacher will say, we'll show you a concept in improvisation class. Some kids can just take it and immediately apply it. Other people have to sort of like think about it. I was like the person who would have to like, think about it for weeks and then maybe I could do something with it. Some people that you would give them a concept and they could immediately utilize it. Like for me, wine is very natural, very instinctive. You know, I don't want to say it's easy, but it just, it just, it's like, it's natural to me. Just like music has never been like, I have to really work at music, but I have more, I think, talent in wine. And so that's why I didn't regret it because I, when I discovered wine, I was like, okay, this is what it means to be in the flow. This is what it means to you know, um, have an ability that maybe other people don't have to, you know, pick apart differences in a wine or to remember vintages or to have the capacity to taste many wines and differentiate them or to, there's other things that writers have to do that other people struggle with the, you know, adherence of deadlines and other things, you know? So no, I don't regret it. I think I was very lucky to find something that I was naturally talented at, but I, I only found that after having failed at many other things. And, and I believe that Failure is an essential part of excellence. Kobe Bryant has the record for the most missed shots in the NBA. And I love that because what it tells you is the only way you don't make a mistake is if you don't take the shot. Those are the only people who don't make mistakes in life, the people who don't take shots. And if you want to win, you have to take shots, but you have to accept that you're going to miss a certain number of them.
And the more you take, the more you're going to miss. And in a team sport, for example, the more your team trusts you to deliver the win, the more you're going to miss. And it's a beautiful thing to recognize that it's okay to fail. It's okay to miss. Because if you keep taking enough shots, you're going to win. And I try to kind of go that way, you know? It's a good approach. I mean, it's your approach and it's a good approach. And I think everyone's path is different when it comes to wine or anything for that matter. And it, I think it sounds like you could have gone a lot of different directions. I think it sounds like you could have gone music, but I, I certainly appreciate that you went wine. You also went down the business rabbit hole for a little while too at, at MIT. And I know we're getting close on time, but what was it about going to to the Sloan School that really appealed to you? What did you feel like? Was, was there something missing in your life or did you feel like it was just interesting? Well, no. I mean, I think that... So after the waiting tables era that Vanessa asked me about, I needed a, like a regular job and I started working in financial companies in Boston, kind of temping. And then I, that became a real job. And then because I spoke Italian, they sent this company when I was 30. I mean, I was just... I just was in the right place at the right time. I had three years of experience in financial services, and they sent me to Italy as an expat. They gave me an apartment on the most beautiful tree-lined street in Milan, 10 minutes away from La Scala. It was like fairy tale, expense account, the whole deal. Nice. It was a ridiculous opportunity. But anyway, I knew nothing about finance. I just <laughs> knew like what stuff the companies were telling me to say. And because I was a musician, I was I had no problem like talking in front of people and giving presentations. And it was like, yeah. but I, I knew I had no foundation. I believe a lot in foundation. This is a mistake I've made in the past: is not paying enough attention to fundamental building block concepts. And you can get away with that for a certain amount of time, and then maybe you realize that you're missing that. And by the time you miss it, it's sometimes very hard to go back and do like the rudimentary work. So I believe a lot in like building block concepts. And I knew nothing about finance. I'm like, I, like you said, Amanda, I was missing um, like a proper education. And I decided that I wanted to have a proper education in business. So I went to business school at MIT. I figured, you know, I wanted to apply to the hardest schools that I could get into. And I wanted to have a resume that was like bulletproof. And, and I thought, well, if I, if I go to a quant school like MIT or Chicago, nobody could ever doubt my resume. <laughs> That's true. And I got into both of those places. It's really ridiculous. It's just because, you know, you have this scale, like this bell curve of people rather. Right. And there's always like the one person on the end, way, way at the end <laughs> that kind of makes everybody else look normal. And I, obviously I was, I mean, my, my, my GMAT was horrible. You know, I took it three times. Each time I took it, my score was lower. <laughs> I mean, it's a disaster. <laughs> but Somehow that I got in at MIT, and um, but the funny thing is, I thought I was going to go there to learn about options and futures and derivatives and all this technical financial stuff, and I didn't realize that that MIT was very strong in entrepreneurship. And very early on, there, one of my friends at MIT said, "Hey, you know, you're really into wine. You should do something with wine." And you know, so MIT, what that gave me was a confidence to know that that I could run a business, that I could take risks, that I, you know, not to be afraid. I think fear is a terrible thing that a lot of us face from time to time. And it can really be paralyzing and debilitating. You know, when you go to a place like MIT, you know, you feel like it's okay if this doesn't work out, if, if this fails. You know, I remember this conversation I had with Bill Harlan. I think it might've been right around the time of Venice. But he said, you know, as long as you don't hurt anybody, you'll always land on your two feet. And I don't think he was talking about me personally, yeah. you know, per se. I think he was talking more more generally, you know, as long as like you're a good person and you don't like hurt other people, you know, the worst thing that happens is you just dust yourself off and like start over. And sometimes, sometimes that has to happen. So what MIT gave me was just this confidence to know that, that I could just do it and go for it and not, and to not be scared if something didn't work out. So that was another experience that had a lot of important significance there. I also, on the first day, met one of my closest friends is one of the people that I started this company with. And then through him, I met James, who's one of our other founders. So MIT was a very integral part and remains an integral part in what we're doing today. So, I mean, I think all of these experiences have, everything happens for a reason. And that's the other thing I always think of is the things that are the most difficult, the biggest disappointments are often the precursor to something amazing. I mean, I was really devastated when Bob sold the wine advocate to the investors in Singapore after he told me for years he would sell to me, I was just crushed. But Pretty soon I realized that, you know, it's like one door closes and another opens, except there was like one door closed, but like a thousand open. And I think it's just important to keep this perspective. It's like life has these arcs and each of these stops is meaningful. And, you know, you try to take it most advantage and learn what you have to in that given moment. 
and uh, have no regrets. And all of these things are just important things. And then when you look back on your life, you know, later you see that everything had some, mm -hmm. there was a reason why these different things happened. And therefore you want to really be in the moment as much as possible. You want to be learning. And I want to like archive that, put it in the toolbox for later. I'll, I'll need that like five years from now. <laughs> well, you know? you've arrived uh, with many things learned, I assume. I mean, by the sounds of it from this hour and however long conversation, you're the CEO of Venice. That is your company. You also under that own Delectable and Banquet. You are considered one of the world's, if not the world's greatest wine critics. So something's working and you still get to play a heck of a lot of music. So it sounds like things are going pretty well. It sounds like you made the right choices. Very yeah. lucky. Aren't we all? Well, I'll tell you this last story. When I was working at Deutsche Bank, actually, I think it was after Deutsche Bank, I had lunch with this this guy, Kevin Parker. He, he, he was, when I worked at Deutsche Bank, Kevin was like my boss's 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 boss, like way up there, <laughs> um, but in the same area. But anyway, I went to lunch with him once at Morea, you know, in, in New York. And he said to me, he said, when I turned 50, I decided I was only going to spend time with people that I liked yeah. and do things that I liked. And I'm like, <laughs> I was a lot younger than him, but I'm like, why the hell wait till you're 50? Right. Why do you have to be 50 for that to be a good idea? I'm like, I'm doing that now. <laughs> like I left that lunch a changed person. Yes. Like I try to steal as much as I can from like little ideas from other people. Yeah. You know, which is what musicians do. Musicians are like, oh, I like that phrase. I'm going to take that from this person and that from that person. And that's what musicians do. <laughs> I thought this was such a brilliant insight the way it was stated so clearly, I'm like, well, why does the age have to matter? I mean, usually people assume, okay, as I get a little older, I have a little bit more control and power, but I think, you know, do what you love yeah. and spend time with people you like and spend time doing things that you love. And the rest just kind of takes care of itself, but you have to kind of be willing to jump into that. <laughs> Close your eyes, <laughs> take a deep breath. I just, I was like, you know, I'm going to do this now. Like literally the moment I left that lunch, I'm like, I'm doing this today. I love that story. Wise words. Don't hang out with anyone you don't want to. I just learned that, <laughs> cop that from him, from Kevin Parker. Yeah, yeah. I like it. Yeah, so. Well, I'm certainly hanging out with someone I love spending time with. So thank you so much for being here with us. And I, I hope the old adage that you learned back then still holds true and our company wasn't... Uh, wasn't ones that you didn't enjoy. Um, thank you. This has been so much fun. I hope there is a part two. And I, I have like a whole list of questions we didn't even get to. I wanted to talk about NFTs and the NBA and wine and new talent. We have so much to cover. So this isn't the end, I well, hope. You can ask me whatever you want. It's just a pleasure to be with you. It'll be more fun <laughs> you know, when, when it's possible to do things in person again. And uh, yeah. maybe we can split those wines so that they're not so tough on the wine access budget. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it's always great to spend time talking and uh, hopefully next time it'll be in person and the world will be in a little bit better place than we are today. But it's looking good. There's light at the end of the tunnel. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll take an intermission and then we'll have an act two All right. later. Sounds good. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you both guys. Have a nice evening. Thanks for time. Cheers. 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 All right. Be honest. Did you expect that conversation to go in all of those directions? No, a lot of it I was hoping it would because I did really want to, you know, ask him about music yeah. and, and that side. Um, but no, I I don't know what I expected. I I thought he would be a little bit more kind of reserved, maybe. Um, yeah. But he was so open. I I just loved his I loved his stories. I loved hearing about him, you know, being on a restaurant floor and kind of how that guided other parts of his career. And then of course, you know, obviously he has an amazing experience with with all kinds of wines. But you know. To, to really hear that he's still kind of an enthusiastic student of wine mm -hmm. was absolutely was really, really just inspiring. That was probably the most refreshing thing I've heard in a long time. And I think when he talked about writing and how he approaches wine and how music sort of intertwines with that and the creative side of his brain, it occurred to me as he was talking that Antonio Galoni, though he is very much a figure in the industry, is also a, a person and a very talented and creative one at that. So it was really, really fun and exciting and, like I said, refreshing to be able to to drop all of the the stigma, the um, that sort of facade that we have around him. It was nice to have that dropped and just have a human-to-human -human conversation, which, as always, has been the impetus and the ethos for this podcast. You know, let let's just drink a you know a couple bottles of wine and see what happens. And yeah. I, I think it was really fun and really interesting, and I learned a lot. 
And speaking of a couple bottles of wine, these are both so delicious. I'm so happy he chose these. You know, I think they both have such a great story behind them. But, you know, we talked about earlier, they're so affordable. So it's like, oh, just so refreshing. I know we've, you know, we've consumed some very expensive bottles on this podcast with various (laughs) guests. But I have to say, you know, enjoying these, which are, you know, in the 30 range, like I enjoy these just as much as when we've, we've tasted things, you know, four or five times as expensive on the show. Yeah, I I think my my last drops for this be open, drink promiscuous. I think that old adage of not old adage, that's your adage, drink promiscuous. <laughs> <laughs> it's old adage. Um that you know, it, it really rang true for me and I was like, yeah, I was like, you know, we need to be embracing more wines like this on an everyday basis. And I think these are two extraordinary wines that more people should be picking up. You know, a very approachable varieties. It's not like we're drinking some like obscure, you know, esoteric, mm-hmm. something we've never heard of. We're drinking Zin and Syrah. But I think, you know, from smaller producers, um, maybe doing some different things, you know, really focusing on the farming side of things, um, minimal intervention, you know, just exciting, exciting stuff. Uh, it reminded me that those are some of the most exciting bottles on the planet and they should not be ignored. Totally agree. Yes. And yeah. I- I'm looking at my glasses. They're fairly even. I mean, it was tough yeah. today. I don't really have a clear winner or loser in this game. They're both uh, enjoyed sort of equally. Which I have to say is a feat, I think, for both of us, because I know both of us are big Syrah lovers and both of us are not as enthusiastic normally about Zinfandel. So the fact that the Zin stood its ground against something like the Arno Roberts Syrah is pretty incredible. You're totally right. You're completely right in that. Yes. I know that I also have a burger upstairs waiting for me, like a five guys. This has been like a thing for me. Um, not every night, like every, like once a week, everyone's going to be like, like eating burgers every day. Um, if someone else wants to have a burger and a glass of Zin or a glass of Syrah, where can they, where can they pick that up? You know, the wine side of things. Oh, I can help you with that at wineaccess.com. Um, and then of course, if you want to follow us on Insta, because we do uh, sometimes have some, some IG exclusive wines that are listed sure there. Do. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Just wine access at wine access on Instagram. And of course on Facebook at the wine access experience. Yes. And if you want to follow this show on Instagram, we are at Wine Access Unfiltered. That is where you will find all the video clips and at Wine Access Pod on Twitter. And if you enjoyed this podcast and want to keep hearing more, we encourage you to subscribe it. We actually ask that you subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review, a five-star review with a little note of what you're enjoying most about this show, what your favorite episode has been is really, really helpful. And honestly, it really helps Vanessa and I to stay motivated, you know, beyond the wine it does <laughs> and I mean, the talking the, the <laughs> wine doesn't hurt but no the feedback's great <laughs> yeah we love it well thank you so much vanessa always a pleasure i look forward to seeing you again with a couple more bottles of wine and uh until then cheers cheers